Tenakoto Katon no my Hokimaiki Talking Performance. Called Jay Carter Aho. Welcome back or welcome to Talking Performance. My name is Jay Carter and I am the host of this podcast. This is part three of the 2022 review, and this week I'm reviewing the podcast chats I had with Ollie Runswick, Stuart Morgan, and Cal Jones. As I've said prior to each of these reviews, I have really enjoyed the process. What I haven't enjoyed is my voice in between. On the first week, I sounded like a patronizing twat, and then on the second review, I sounded like I was on double speed, so hopefully it's third time lucky. Anyway, I'll work on that this week, where I am reviewing Dr. Oliver Runswick, Stuart Morgan, and Cal Jones. We're going to kick off with Dr. Ollie Runswick. Ollie is an assistant professor in performance psychology at King's College in London and his research focuses on understanding and enhancing learning and performance in domains including sport, dance, education and the military. We start off this chat, I was asking Ollie questions around uh, field placements in cricket and even if you've seen the fielder be put in that spot, you know they're going to try and get you out, yet you still seem to hit it to them. So I wanted to get his take on that. And then we led into uh, what's the point of net practice in cricket and um, some of these unrepresentative training environments that we train in across all sports. The bit where he talked about the intentional leave of Smith and Lavashane and that being harder than we think, I found really interesting, but, but I'll leave it to him to dig into that. Um, we see it like from lots of different examples, lots of players who can't help just trying to hit it, boom and cover drives even though it's going to get them out all the time. We like not everyone can do this action thing. You're just not hitting the ball outside off stump for a, for a whole game. Yeah. Um, so like there is that side of it as well, where it, the, inhi- the inhibit inhibitory control is really important in baseball as well. It is pretty hard. Um, and a, like one of the cognitive skills that's really interesting in a variety of sports is actually not being, not executing shots. Mm. Um, uh, there's some interesting writings about, um, Smith and Labashain's leavings like really dramatically being because it's easier to play a shot or make a movement than it is to just do nothing um, because then you kind of have that as a primary movement response rather than it kind of being trying to stop yourself doing anything at all um, so yeah I mean you can't answer the question but there's a variety of things that could be happening particularly yeah. the idea that in a you're bowling in a certain location people are going to have pretty well developed responses um to at that kind of particular set of stimuli where sometimes it's hard to just not do it yeah um just want to go back to the uh the stuff around the cues and the field settings and everything else that's having an influence uh and i've seen some images that you've put up around like a forward defensive shot to a bowling machine uh, where everything was perfect bat and pad were close together um you know head over the ball it was just picture perfect and then a forward defensive shot same batsman to an actual bowler and the bats miles ahead of the pad so if that's happening in training Mm -hmm. uh but not happening it's not is necessarily representative of what happens what's the point what's the point in practice yeah yeah i mean some people would argue very strongly that there is no point at all in facing a bowling machine um i wouldn't say i'm completely in that category but you're going to be minimizing your ability to take things out onto the field efficiently if you're not representing the situations in the same way you're effectively practicing a slightly different skill it's not completely different but it is different so you're removing elements of it um so the more elements you remove the harder it's going to be to transfer it out into a game situation 
Um, but practice is not always about getting better at middling the ball. Like some people might like facing the ball and machines it makes them feel confident, for example, which could have a positive influence on performance. We don't know, but the, the, the fundamental thing is that if you're trying to make improve skills that you want to then transfer out to the game, you need to be representing the game as much as you can in order to try and make that transfer process easier. And one of the kind of main things that any athlete or coach asks you is, why can I do this in training and not in matches? Mm. And then you look at training and training looks absolutely nothing like matches. If you become a pilot or an astronaut or an elite level soldier, all you do is extremely representative training in all the possible scenarios that you're going to face in real life in amazing simulators. Like the idea of someone going up on a rocket without having spent tens of thousands of hours in the exact simulation with all the different scenarios wouldn't that you wouldn't do that. But in sport, we just remove loads of this information that in other kind of surgery as well simulation training is a huge thing now in other areas would be seen as really strange but for some reason in sport this idea of breaking things down and removing that information which is really important to executing things out on the field is completely normal Mm. you know going to the driving range is a classic example it's just so embedded in the culture of a sport that but it's actually pretty weird if you think about it yeah i hate Um, driving ranges (laughs) Um, but practice is better than no practice, I would say. Like, as long as you're not doing something that's really damaging, which is a hard is hard to do. Like, practice practice is generally going to be useful, but it's certainly going to be more or less useful, um, particularly with that transfer element of being able to take it out there into um, into actual real life gameplay easily. Um, and so one of the kind of no, you go. No, you go. Yours will be way better than mine. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, it's just one of the kind of classic things that people don't realize because it's so embedded in a culture of a sport. Like I was at an MMA gym the other day and I asked them why they use punch bags. They didn't really have an answer, but every session involves some kind of bag work. Mm. And then learning how to actually punch someone is such a basic skill for someone who's going to be a high level fighter. It'd be like a footballer turning up and hitting a side foot past 10 yards against a wall but when it's really embedded in how you've trained in a in a specific sport then it seems to be people do it without asking the question of why do we actually do this a lot of the work i do is just going in and asking people why do you do that and if they've got a good reason then i'm pretty happy but lots of times there's not much of a reason yeah Um, it's worth thinking about what do we have in our sport that's so embedded in our culture that we just take it for granted you know, things like cricket nets, driving ranges uh, in golf, boxing against a punching bag, they are so different to the real thing. Um, like Ollie alluded to, sometimes there's a good reason for it, um, but it can't be just because that's the way we've always done it. I think we owe it to the athletes to give some thought to what we're doing when we're coming up with our practice design. While we're on the buzz of this training, uh, we talked about how can we make these environments a little more representative. Because if we just do an open wicket and cricket, the bowler's getting action, the batsman's getting action, but the guy at final leg seeing nothing. And in rugby, I think uh, making a tackle is different to uh, making a touch. So there's so much of that information that we're missing. Uh, however, we need probably uh, the repetitions, and that's where nets and driving ranges and what have you can help. So. Uh, this next bit we focus on how do we try and merge both of those things together the first thing is it's not just game based or not there is 
an awful lot of in between. Um, and depending on the sport, you're always going to have practicalities like in bowling, in cricket, uh, I think in our um, junior women's program, I think it's they're at 12 overs a week or something like that when they're under 18. Um, so it's always going to have practical limitations. But that first bit you described when everyone's rocking up and bowling in the net, there's no reason why you can't bowl six balls in a row and literally just pretend what the score is. And that seems really basic, but it changes the way that training happenings happens completely. It just needs someone there to come up with that. And we often have no field settings or anything like that in those scenarios. So even if you literally, some of the work I've done has just been literally going, imagine it's naught for naught and you're playing a 50 over game. As basic as that, and it completely changes everyone's behavior. Mm. Um, and like the way that we can develop training and make it better is not through like amazing technology or these like breakthrough theoretical advances, stuff like that is so easy to do and no one seems to do it. And it makes such a big difference. Um, so absolutely practice in the middle, but like you say, actually with something like cricket, that removes pretty much everyone's ability to practice most of the time mm. um, where you're probably not going to be getting runs or you're going to get out early. A lot of the time you may be removing the, the ability to practice, but we can absolutely improve the practice that is more practical. Um, for example, you know, using dog throwers of revolutionized bang practice, um, which I said to someone the other day, doesn't know anything about sport and found it absolutely hilarious. Um, but, you know, just saying those little things, right? Well, we can't have a bowler today, but we can still have a dog thrower and we can still have you batting in the scenarios that you're going to be batting in, in the game. Um, and it really just changes the way that people behave because they're such they're such significant constraints. Um, and in the rugby game, the rugby example, it's kind of similar. Like there's always going to be practical issues that you have. Um, a bit like the bowlers overs being limited. We can't be hitting all day, every day. Um, but we can, for example, one thing that people tend to find quite shocking is do less training, but do better training in the time that you have. Yeah. Um, one of the key things like when I start like a module, I say to the students, how much time you spend in the library this week? And some of them are, oh, you know, all day, every day. I don't know how much time was that, if that was actually useful to you. And it's, it's never much. Yeah. Um, so actually, you know, something like rugby training, training a bit less is not a bad idea either. If you can have a better level of intensity and it be closer to the game. And if you've got to remove tackling, that's, you know, a constraint that is um, completely understandable and it's going to harm the transfer you get. Definitely but also it's going to mean more of your players are playing more often. So there's yeah. all these kind of complex relationships that you'll start to get between someone like me design, trying to design training from like a motor learning perspective, and maybe then your psychologist and your, and your S&C coach and your physio who will have a slightly different angle on, on what's going on and having those conversations and coming up with a, a better training that still incorporates those kind of practical restrictions is something which again, doesn't need to be rocket science. It can just be, right, well, we can't hit that much, but we don't want to just jog around the field and lie on the floor and pretend we're doing a ruck. That's a complete waste of time if we're already good players. Yeah. So can we design training in a way that's more efficient um, and more representative rather than necessarily feeling like we have to do training for the sake of it? The comment that Ollie made about doing less, I wonder if that makes us create better sessions and get rid of some of the time-filling noise. Almost like on Twitter how you're limited to the amount of words you can actually use, which makes you be a little bit more concise with the language you use and get rid of the waffle words 
uh, which you can imagine I struggle with. In the next clip, Ollie speaks about what we are feeling and how that can shape how we move and the decisions that we make and how we can build that into practice. Yeah, and I think, you know, I did a study recently just on with a bit of putting where we just gave people match play scenarios and it changed like the putting stroke, it changed their like eye movement behavior. Um, so like these things are all factors that affect the way that we move, even if it's not an opponent. Like you still know whether you're under par, over par, you still know where you lie on the field, you still have different types of shots, different kind of vari- variability in lies. Um, and you also need to be able to understand, you know, a pin position versus your capability of hitting a certain ball flight. Um, so it might seem less intuitively relevant, but the contextual factors in golf are actually massive in terms of um, particularly like building up the sequences of shots that you've hit, the ones you've hit before, um, and also your ability to understand um, your own strengths in terms of selecting appropriate responses. Um, and one thing in golf is just fascinating is just the the subtle variability. Like you don't see it so much in many other tasks, but where it's like, I need to do almost the same thing over and over again, but it never is the same. Yeah. Um, and that kind of subtle variation is really, really interesting. Um, but the subtle variation will also come from the fact that sometimes you're playing for a birdie and sometimes you're hitting a similar putt that's not quite exactly the same, but it's for a bogey. And that has a really different emotional aspect to it. Um, and, and that's a constraint on the way that you're going to execute the movements too. Um, and people know putting for birdie, par and bogey feels different and is mm. different, but we still don't do that in practice for some reason. Um, is it because we know in practice that, we're, that, it, that it's not for birdie and par? Because statistically we yeah. hold more par putts from the same length yeah. than we do birdie putts. Yeah, and I, we do know, but there's a decent amount of work out there that shows that it's still beneficial to do. um for example like trying to do pressure training again anxiety into training again like you can think about that i was like went to a thing with about pressure training with psychologists the other day who who aren't skillac people we had some really interesting conversations because they were just seeing it from a completely different angle than i was um and then we have like affective learning design that john hedrick wrote about which is about getting all the emotions into training Um, but we know that um from like pressure training a variety of domains as well like police work and military etc someone shoots you back even if you know it's a rubber bullet you still changes the way that you're going to act mm. um, and actually if you're a little bit there's a little bit extra on on the part even if you know that it's not real it still is more representative a bit like having a field setting in a net you know it's not really there but it still changes the way that you play mm. um, and it's still better than not having it it's never going to be, I mean, nothing's ever going to replace real life and real competition, but we can make training that's not that closer to it. And even if we don't know, it's still better. The emotional stuff, I think, is not limited to what's going on in the game, whether it's for birdie or par, but equally, I think it's about what's going on in our life at any given time. Um, and I suspect that plays a part in performance at every level, um, but equally, it's probably a whole other can of worms for a different podcast. And I love the bit, like Bill Bestick sort of said, if someone's shooting at you, you're going to move differently than you do if someone's not shooting at you. And like Ollie said, even if they are rubber bullets. What do you think, uh, where do you think the space is heading? You know, like it feels like we're shifting towards more of a game-based training or game-like scenarios. Uh, Are there any things you think we need to be careful of in that shift? And do you think, can you see any trends coming up 
um, in yeah, the future. Yeah, I think one real kind of thing that you need to be careful of is, especially when you're working with somebody who's already good at something, the specificity of what you're practicing is going to be really important. Um, you're going to want to still be working on stuff that is going to be something that makes you better. Um, and it's hard to target that if you're focusing like too much just on playing the game. I would always start with the game, but work it back to a task or a training where I'm targeting something that is really specific that's going to help me improve. Um, you know, just like no one is going to go and do generic physical training with no particular reason if they're a professional athlete. The game-based training has a bit of a danger of falling into, I'm just going to go and play golf. Yeah. And playing 18 holes of golf might be pretty good practice, but I might be particularly bad from 50 to 80 yards, real-life example. And <laughs> am I actually focusing enough to actually practice those shots? And I might not be lucky enough to play in a golf course. I have a hole in my garden where I can hit those in real life on a real golf course. Um, so like, as you get better, it's going to get harder to get better and you need to be more specific about the things you're practicing. But we are being more specific by having more game-based practice as well. But we mm. still want to be targeting things to work on. Um, and actually, we might just be doing that more efficiently by doing it in a more game-based way than doing it in a more drill-based fashion, for example. But that's certainly something that I'd be you know, wary of where we're having these conversations about making it as realistic as possible. You still need to practice stuff that you need to practice, mm. but you can just develop it in a way where if I really want you to work on your decision-making early in an in innings, we set up something where you've just come out early in an innings, but it's still got some scenarios based. We're still going to bowl the ball in the place that's realistic for that period of the game, but we're still working on something specific. Um, and having that, gives your athletes the ability to be able to do stuff when they're not with you as well, which at most levels is most of the time um, until you get to a point where you're training full time, basically. So that level of specificity still needs to be there. Specificity of practice is really important. So again, we need to be disciplined as coaches and athletes to ensure that we're maximizing our opportunities. We can't hide behind a games-based approach and let the game be the teacher. We still have to coach. And in many ways, it actually takes more skillful coaching. Next up, we have Stuart Morgan. Stuart is a golf coach who works with players all over the world on the PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, and other tours. Stu has been great for me, even reached out recently to have a chat as he could get a sense through the questions on the podcast that I was grappling with some of the concepts. Uh, golf's a highly technical sport. Golf instructors all over social media talking about what every joint in your body should be doing. But I'm not sure that this helps, and I'm not sure that elite players are always clear on this themselves and so we start off this review with Stuart and I chatting about this absolutely and I think from a coaching standpoint it can be it can actually be quite dangerous as well to try and unpack that with them because then all of a sudden they become overly conscious about what they're doing you know and you like you make them aware of things that they might not even be aware of and whatnot and all of a sudden it's like oh no like what's what's going on here so it's it, it, i think it's a fine line of like you know they find their own way of doing it and that that's what i see as well like in um i, I think if you're trying to get feedback off players like about the whole round and, and whatnot i think it's good to get it if you can as quick after the round as possible before that kind of memory gap kind of kicks in and, the, and our biases kind of kick in um but also when it comes to like movement and things that I, you know, 
the art of reflection is unbelievable, really, because I don't think in it when when they're really competing at their best at a high, a high level, they haven't got a clue what they're doing in that moment. And to try and you know, I've had quite, oh, wow, you know what what went on there, what went on there. And I'm like, I don't know, like I can't I can't remember, you know. And you kind of like, and that's why it's I think it's quite challenging sometimes to really go. And you ask these players and you're trying to learn from these players. It's more, I think, understanding how they got to that point rather than what they're doing in that moment. I think that's, that's really where, because they're obviously doing something exceptionally well, but how did they get there? You know, was it, I, I, I can't, you know, I don't for the life of me see, see it as in the practical world as like this, linear progression towards this moment and i and sometimes i i think they don't even know you know they just you know there's some form of like messing around at some point i think sometimes it's like situational like the more they move up a level and the greens get faster and um you know they have to have really really high spin control the actual fairways get tighter um grooves get better as well so they can have wedges you know more more often or new wedges more often so all of a sudden these whole things like packaging together and they go the the environment demands this of me i need to have this shot so how do i have that some people might get some you know some instruction of how to do it some will go away and they'll just sort of like well i just need to figure this out here and just try and you know how do, how do I hit that shot? Watch others, you know, maybe like Butch always used to say that Tiger used to, or used to watch Jose Maria Lathabal like hit like flighted wedge shots and things like that. So, you know, I don't think there's one way of getting to that point. I think there kind of might be a multitude of, of little interventions along the way. And that's the stuff that, that procedural stuff, that's the stuff I think we need to pay more attention to, to learn more from rather than just the, like the performance outcome that we're seeing. I think back to being a kid, I tried to do everything the right way. Yeah, I tried yeah. to have a really narrow bandwidth of a tolerance. And so yeah. I'd do everything right. Oh, t- attempt to do everything right. And yeah. then I had a mate who just, um, just loved, just loved trying stuff like, you know, he'd go, can you do this? Can you do that? Let's try this. But I'd be like, no, 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 we've got to, the club has to be here to deliver it. And now, uh, and I thought, I, you know, like I used to think he was the idiot. Um, <laughs> turns out I was a bit that's late a, to the party. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but you often think, I don't, you know, do we give young athletes, probably in any sport, the permission to be creative or are we trying to box them into what, you know, what the conventional way is and and that's the you know that's part of it as well isn't it like the more you have i think it's only a good thing that more of the literature and you know some of the research and the you know the books on play and and all these things start to you know come out into the or get into the golf in the practical world um it's not so easy sometimes because again people are not thinking like that you know mm. they're not because like you said they're trying to go well i need to 
close everything in, you know, closer to this rather than expand it out and see, you know, see what comes of it. Um, um, but I think it's just a process. And I think that it's more like, even just, even just getting, you know, golfers like, you know, that ex- the space to explore and to go, all right, all right, we're going to have a, an exploration session today. Okay. You hit, hit a shot over there. Okay. Can you do that in a different way? Can you do that with a different club? Or, you know, what, what, what things do you notice? You know, that, because I think sometimes there's not the space to do that. Is there enough? Mm. Yeah. I think when I, and when I look back at when I grew up, it was more about, I almost I had to do that because I was, you know, I was on the golf course more. So it was never, it was never predictable in that respect. Like, oh yeah, this is exactly the same shot here. Mm. Um, so I've got to do it in this way. Um, it was more about, again, just get out there and with your mates and just kind of, you know, we were always obsessed with like finding a Balata ball at that time and trying to hit, trying to get it to spin back type of, type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Just, trying, just trying to, you know, trying to figure out how to do that you know yeah. and then we started to figure out oh if we do it off like one of the winter mats like where you get more like then all of a sudden you can really get some kind of grip, <laughs> grip off that you can hear Stu's voice come alive when he's talking about his experience as a kid and perhaps that's why kids are better learners than adults because they're brave enough and open enough and uh, aware enough to just play and learn in the next clip Stu talks about the balancing act of what we do at tournaments and how we schedule practice and training throughout the year to give players what they probably both need and want. What to do at a tournament that's, that's enough and not too much. Right. So what, so in the sense of like, so I have the, the, these color codings of like green practice, red practice, and then blue. So green would be more like we said, space to explore and space to learn different things. So as a junior, you might have a longer green cycle and shorter blue cycles, which is performance. Um, whereas in the, the environment I'm in, we have very small green like training days and whatnot because the players are highly skilled. You know, they have a, a lot of this. But when you're looking at red, for me, is like a stretch day, right? It's like, okay, when do we have the space to really load on and try and stretch this player, try and challenge certain things, try and challenge behaviors, try and challenge you know, skills and, and whatnot? When do we do that? And then blue is like performance. So much more like, okay, these are your competencies right now. Um, these are strong. What are your processes going in? You know, making sure that they're, they're they're in a good place to deal with all sorts of all sorts of stuff that that might come up. Um, but when they're at that tournament, like I said, it's the it's the wrestling of not you know mindful of well we're trying to get through to Sunday afternoon that we have a lot of we still have enough cognitive energy going in there. I still don't think physical is really too bad for these boys because they've been, you know, they've swung a golf club so many times for for years and years and years, but just the concentration load and things like that. So like I said, keeping the tasks there 
but maybe just lowering the volume of the tasks. Um, some players keep them away from ball beating on a Wednesday, for example, and, and if they can't go on the golf course, be very kind of clinical with what you're going to do and, and, and whatnot. But it's just a juggle, isn't it? And it's just being able to, I'm not there every week, right? And it's like, I can't, I, I can't enforce that because I want, I want them to have a level of autonomy at the same time um, to be able to feel I need this at this time. And, that, and that's okay to me. You know, they're, they're the ones in the, in the arena kind of doing it but also having enough time with the mindful of, well, yeah, we have these weeks off here, but what are we going to do in those weeks? You know, you have maybe a recovery week. We just get back, but, yeah, but what are we going to do in that second week? We need to get something. We need to move the dial a little bit. Um, also, what's enough time with a player? What's enough time at a tournament? What's a, enough time away from tournaments you know from as a as a coach like i'm always wrestling like with that do i need to do more do i need to do less do i need to you know there's a tons tons of stuff Stu has such a high awareness about the players needs and he also mentions that they are the ones in the arena and i think sometimes as coaches we can forget that i know certainly it's a work on for me you can see that he's a deep thinker about the game and helping his players he works with to improve. Next up we have Cal Jones, whose background is in judo and he has a great understanding of the practicalities of coaching through an ecological dynamics lens. And you get a sense from this first clip that it hasn't always been this way. So uh, essentially I'd read some of Schmidt's work. Um, so I was familiar with uh, sort of having schema and motor programs that we were trying to recall and I'd kind of bought into the Kool-Aid a little bit and had recognized that uh, these perfect technical models we need them to be drilled ad infinitum so that they were really clear and could be recalled and deployed and calibrated perfect well parameterized I think is the the uh, IP version uh, at will uh, so I was very much on the we'll have perfect technique I remember um suggesting that we avoid doing sparring <laughs> we avoid actually doing the sport so we can get better at the sport before we do the sport and that seemed to make sense at the time i love that bit it makes me smile every time because i think that we can all relate to that in the next clip i asked cal about how he counters the argument that people who do achieve their goals in a way that wouldn't necessarily align with the ecological dynamics way yeah for sure i always like to think of uh the old, old football players, so like George Best, and you can say, well, drinking copious amounts of alcohol and having a wonderful evening with Miss World the night before an FA Cup final worked for George Best, so that's what we should all do. You know, there are people that are successful regardless. There's, you know, I think Marco Sullivan has a good one where he talks about uh, nobody seeing the dead bodies when we talk about talent. There's a graveyard nobody sees. Some people will reach the top, but the overwhelming majority of people fall by the wayside and the damage is done. And you never see the missing positives. You never see the people that could have been great if only they'd had a more progressive or more forward-thinking approach taken. Uh, so I guess my my retort is usually, well, yeah, there, there has to be a person that is the top of the tree. Uh, and they also kind of do a lot of incidental good work. So. Let's say 
they have a 24 hour week, like train 24 hours and they spend six of that doing just mindless rote repetition. But they also spend 12 hours of that doing randori or, or sparring against some of the best judo players that the planet has ever produced. They'll get good. <laughs> the, the question isn't, are they getting better? It's which of the things that they do is making them better. Uh, and I'd, I'd very, very comfortably suggest that a bunch of the time that they spend could be spent better, um, despite only being some schlub in North Wales that's not not an Olympic coach. But I think the literature is really, really robust in that, that there's, there's better things we could be doing with our time than just rehearsing technical models. It's really interesting when Cal talks about uh, what they're doing that we're not aware of and, and they might not even be aware of. And on a slightly different note, but I think along the same sort of concept is I often think about New Zealand's number one male golfer, Ryan Fox, and wonder what influence his dad, all black great Grant Fox, had on him growing up. Equally, I understand that we'll never know this, but I just think for him, growing up in that environment must have shaped the way that he thinks about the world. And then that's going to have an effect on how he plays. In the next clip, I ask Cal, what is the best way to learn if it isn't about constantly just repeating the same thing over and over again? It's representative learn design all the way down. Uh, yeah, essentially, we, we kind of want to design practice sessions where the people we're working with, the athletes or players, have the opportunity to rehearse a whole bunch of solutions to a problem, but not in the same way and not the same problem. So we call it repetition without repetition. So it's rather than taking the exact same shot from the exact same position 10,000 times, it's taken 10,000 shots from 10,000 different positions where I have to be able to actually pick up on the variables that I need to in order to coordinate my action more efficiently. So for something like golf, uh, I'd imagine that the not having an opponent would uh, sim simplify things quite a bit. So I guess rather than putting a ball down on the exact same spot and trying to chip it onto the grass 50 times from the same spot, you'd probably be much better off scattering a bunch of balls around from a similar kind of distance, all on different lies, different slopes, different, I assume that's the term. Uh, so that I'm hitting similar shots in similar ways. So I, it might be uh, looking to try and chip onto the green and run it towards the pin so that I can try and putt, but I'm doing it in a myriad of different ways. And the solution that I take is similar, but not the same. Uh, I'm not trying to eliminate errors. I'm not trying to sort of minimize variability. I'm trying to embrace the variability that exists in how we play these shots and learn how I can kind of dance with it. I need to be able to use that variability and play with it. It needs to be a skill I have. I love the language there where he says to dance with it and to play with it. And language is so critical in coaching. Um, I'd love to get Nick Winkleman on the podcast at some stage. So if anyone has any connections to Nick, uh, let me know. In the next clip, we go into thinking about repetition and how this is played in judo, particularly with kata, and why this might not be the most effective way to train. You can't really learn how to throw somebody when you don't have somebody to throw. Um, so they kind of made grappling dolls like dummies, stuff pillows into clothes and tie the arms off and throw them. But at the end of the day, the, the sport isn't throwing things. It's 
trying to throw an opponent that is resisting and trying their best to not be thrown, that's also trying to throw you. Uh, so when you start, when you decouple the skill completely from the information sources, you're kind of practicing a separate thing. You know, I'm, I'd be, that's why we have a thing called kata. So there's sort of forms. It's, it's basically a dance routine. I'm sure someone will be offended by that. I apologize, but it is basically a dance routine. Uh, yeah. So each, each person has a role that they're playing and they know ahead of time what they're doing. Um, and there's people that are world champion kata practitioners. They dance beautifully. You, if you were to take a snapshot of it, their technique looks immaculate. It's just really beautiful, kinematically perfect. If I was to analyze it, there's no waste. And then they try and do judo. They try and perform in the sport of judo and they're useless. They couldn't throw their way out of a paper bag, you know, because sport isn't the application of technique in novel circumstances. Skill is something very different to just having perfect technique and knowing when to apply it. It's being skillful and applying technical solutions to those moments, uh, which I think is a, a really important distinction that can be lost. You know, I, I might have the most technically perfect golf swing that the world has ever seen when I'm on a driving range and I'm under shelter indoors, there's no wind and people come and watch me. They see it and they're measuring there's an X factor. They can see that my hips and shoulders are disconnected and they measure it. And it's the most that's ever been recorded. It's phenomenal. And then I get onto a golf course and I'm atrocious. I have never played in the wind. I've never played when the ball isn't completely flat on a carpet and I can't play golf. I'm just, I technically have a beautiful swing, but I don't have any of the skill sets that are required to be able to perform the sport of golf. How good is that distinction between technique and skill? I love that. He talks about having the best technically looking swing, but can't play the actual game. And you do see that a little bit. Uh, in the next bit, we go back to what we were talking about with Ollie Runswick at the start of this podcast and being aware that we can't just play the game. So if we think of it as a sort of sliding scale from one to a hundred, a hundred would be just do the sport itself. If I just do the sport itself, it doesn't give me enough scope to target a specific area. So let's say my putting was appalling, which it is. Um, if I just played golf, I just played a game of golf, I'd have... If I was a decent player, what's the average number of putts? Two, something like that, three? Yeah, so that times 18 attempts. Uh, whereas I might need way more. So it might be better off for me to keep some of the representativeness, but slide down the scale. So I'm not having a run-up shot beforehand. I'm just putting them on and around the green so I can hit more of the shots, but still retaining enough of the specified information for me to be able to attune to that. If we drop completely down, so we're down at a one, where I'm in my hallway, I have a cup at one end and I have a floor that's uniform and I'm stood at the other and I just have to try and hit it into the cup so I can groove my stroke. And I think that that perfect delivery of my club is going to make me the best putter on earth. Well, that's probably a one on the representative scale. I think that would be closer to a waste of time. Uh, than if I was at around a 40-50% where there's enough specified information. I'm attuning to the information that is there directly and learning how to do that, even though it is not one for one, this is the sport. If you just play the game, it's hard to get good at the game. <laughs> you have to take bits of the game and practice that in isolate well, in isolation. Uh without all of the rest. You're turning up the volume on certain aspects of the game that you want to get better at and practicing that 
as a slice rather than the whole thing. How good that he's brave enough to say that putting in your hallway to groove your stroke is pretty close to a waste of time. Uh, Apologies to all you golfers who do this. Again in there the language is amazing how he says turning up the volume. I think it's really critical and as I said something I'm going to look into more in 2023. I couldn't leave this last clip out as it was one of my favorite clips of the year. One of the things I, I like to do when I take rugby sessions for the first time and they have this idea of tackle technique or the correct way to throw a rugby ball or somebody says, oh, I can't spin it. I just throw a ball like as as prettily as I can. One of these sort of tight spirals, arcing flight and say, do you think that was a good pass? And they'll say, oh yeah. The ones that can play rugby say, no, but I'll, I'll ignore them. Um, And then I point out, did that pass go to anybody? (laughs) And they say, no. Did that pass open up a channel for somebody to run through? Did they break the line because of that pass? No. Uh, Did I observe space and pass the ball into space so that we could utilize it? No. Okay, stand up. And I just shovel a ball to them, sort of the most sloppy, atrocious pass, and it goes into their hands. Was that pass a good pass? (laughs) <laughs> and at this point they sort of they see the trap and you think ah we we see so your technical how you do it how i achieve a goal is far less relevant than the fact that i consistently achieve it if it's the case that my sloppy underhand shovel pass is ineffective i've been doing it for five years and my passing percent my passing completion percentage is like 15 then maybe i want a coach to come along and look at offering me some solutions or shape in practice in such a way that they might try and uh, have they might try and elicit a different way of delivering a ball but if my solution is successful and is consistently successful and isn't holding me back it doesn't matter if it doesn't look pretty i don't need to do a hundred thousand repetitions with a medicine ball from a nice little box that I'm throwing the ball off so that it looks like a nice tight throw. That's just not, it's not how the world works. Well, that's a wrap of number three in the 2022 review. As I said, I'm really enjoying doing these. I've also got some cool guests lined up for 2023. So I look forward to bringing you some new and fresh episodes shortly. There's still a few reviews to go. If you have anyone that you think I should contact and reach out to to get on the podcast, please let me know. And thank you so much for your support.